Good morning, Emmanuel. You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. In C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book he wrote in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, Father Christmas brings the Pevensey kids gifts. For Peter, he brings a sword and a shield. For Susan, he brings a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a horn to blow that would bring help in time of need. For Lucy, he brings a dagger and a vial of liquid, a a drop from which will heal any wound. The Pevensey children had to know their gifts and learn how to appropriate them or use them for the challenges they would face ahead. So, as God's chosen people, we have gifts that we can be thankful for as we look forward to Thanksgiving this week. Um, But we have also been given gifts to help us to grow and face the challenges of the Christian life. However, we need to know and understand these gifts in order to appropriate them. We need to learn how to use these gifts that God has given us. Knowing these gifts will also help us to grow in knowledge of the one who gave us these gifts and to grow in our relationship with him. So turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to Ephesians 1.15. The passage this morning is verses 18 through 19, but I'm going to start in verse 15 for context, review a little bit. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we need a little bit of context before and after the verses we're going over this morning and the passage. And in verse 15, as we we talked about last week, um, Paul is um, has finished his Berica. Um, his blessing to the Lord um, and for what God has done for his people. And then he, he, he goes from there in chapter 1 to, to a prayer of thanksgiving for the faith and the, uh, of, of the Ephesians in Christ and their love for all the saints. And then also he begins to pray for them um, that, that God, the Father, the Father of Christ, would give them the Holy Spirit 
um, and the spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, in the knowledge of him, that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes so that they would know Christ more, so that they would know God more, and um, that he would open the eyes of their heart, um, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so he's asking that they would know, through the Holy Spirit, would know God more, and know him not only intellectually, but personally. They would experience him more in their lives and, and, and know him in relationship. And then in verse 18, B, um, he begins to talk about how he, he begins to ask specifically that God would know, would the Holy Spirit would help them to know three things, three gifts that God has given to us, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Now, the context at the end of the verse is that that power is the same power that he used um, in raising Christ uh, from the dead. So uh, that, that is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. Um, and not only seated him in heavens and raised him from the dead, but seated him above all of his enemies, all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also which is to come. And put everything under his feet. So put everything under his authority and rule. So that power, Holy Spirit power, that raised Christ from the dead and and enthroned him above all of his enemies and above everything and everyone, put everything under his feet and made him the head of the church, that power is at work in us. So um, that's kind of the context, and we'll talk more about the end of that passage um, in a future message. Um, so Paul is praying that God will give the Ephesians a greater measure of the Holy Spirit to help them to know him and to know the three gifts that God has given them to help them to succeed in their Christian walk and to grow in their knowledge of him. So these three gifts help us to succeed in our Christian walk and to grow in our knowledge of Christ. Um, So the title of the sermon is Three Gifts to Know That Help Us to Grow. Three Gifts to Know That Help Us to Grow. God has given us three gifts to know to help us to grow. The first gift to know that helps us to grow is the hope of his calling. The first gift to know that helps us to grow is the hope of his calling. Look in verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Biblical hope can be defined as confidence in the present that rests in a certain future. Confidence in the present that rests in a certain future. Biblical hope is not contingency. It's not a wish. Like, I hope that I see you tomorrow or, you know, I hope I get this. I hope I get... um, a new uh, PlayStation for Christmas, which I really don't, but um, 
whatever it is you want for Christmas. It's not a wish. It's a certainty. It's a confidence. Um, That's biblical hope. Biblical hope can also be defined as faith that endures the weight. Paul wrote of this hope in Romans 8, 23 to 25, the faith that endures the weight. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So, as faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, hope is faith and something before us that endures the wait. Uh, Faith that waits and a confidence that waits for what we don't yet see, for what we don't have. And the hope of his calling, although, again, hope is a present, uh, a confidence in the present that we have in the present that rests in a certain future, the hope of his calling is God's gift from the past. So, Although this hope Paul mentions is looking forward to a certain future of the redemption of the body, it is grounded in the believer's past. The believer has a certain hope because of something that has already occurred in his or her past. And what is that? So Paul prays that Ephesians may know the hope of God's calling, the hope of his calling, Their future is certain because God has already called them to himself out of their enslavement to sin to be his children. So what happened in their past? God called them to himself out of their enslavement to sin to be his children. Charles Hodge wrote of the hope of his calling. The vocation here spoken of is not merely the external call of the gospel, but the effectual call of God by the Spirit, to which the word klesis in the epistles of Paul always refers. So klesis always refers to that effectual call. So this hope that Paul is talking about here, it rests in the effectual calling of the believer, the irresistible call of God by the Holy Spirit, which occurred just before the conversion of the believer, when the Spirit called us to faith and repentance by illuminating the Word of God and convicting us of our sin and righteousness and of judgment with the gospel and drawing us to God, resulting in our faith and repentance by which we were saved. So how does a, and so how does a believer's calling in the past give her certainty of her future? Paul helps us to understand the certainty or hope in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, And before I go to that, um, we see also in Ephesians here, Paul has already talked about 
that calling which was rooted in our election or predestination and election earlier in Ephesians, and he's going to talk about that, how that's tied into our election here in Romans as well. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So let's look at how that passage shows that our calling is certain. For one, it tells us that those who are called, for those who are called, all things work together for good. And that is a hope we have for the present as well as for the future. That every, because of God's promise, because of our calling, we know that everything in our life that happens to us, good or bad, not everything is going to be good, but everything good or bad, God is going to work together for good. And he has a plan and purpose for it um, that he's called us for. So, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So our calling gives us hope because it is rooted in our predestination, that God's election of us, his foreknowledge of us, and his, or his foreknowledge of us and his predestination of us to be um, his children that, that was talked about earlier in Ephesians by Paul. So if God has called us, that means that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So that call is certain. God chose us before the foundation of the world, and he's, carried, he's carrying it out. He called us. And because he called us, he also justified us, declared us righteous. And it says, whom he called, he also justified, and, and these whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, this chain cannot be broken. If God has called us, he is going to complete the work that he's started in us. Uh, Being confident of this very thing, as Paul said in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to perform it until the day of Christ. So, if we have been called, if we have a calling, then we have an inheritance. We are justified, and we will be glorified. Um, so, Hodge, uh, and, and, and Romans eleven twenty nine says, that For the gifts of God are irrevocable. That means they cannot be revoked. God's gifts, I'm sorry, the gifts and the calling of God. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So God's calling cannot be revoked. It is, if God has called us, he's going to glorify us. He's going to finish this, the, the work he started in us. He's going to form us to the image of Christ. But if God has, 
he's going to glorify us. He's going to finish the work he has started in us and conforming us to the image of Christ if he has called us. And Hodge also asserts that although hope looks to our future inheritance, it is something to be enjoyed now. So if we have hope in our future, then we can be at rest. We can be at peace. We don't have to live in fear. Uh, we, don't, we can live in peace and joy, uh, resting in Christ. And so the hope that we have, the hope in our calling, is something we can be enjoy now. And so that is God's gift to us from the past. And now, how does, so how does the, the knowledge of the hope of his calling help us to grow? It gives us confidence that, and, and prevents us from being discouraged when we fail or when we, when we struggle with sin knowing that God is going to finish the work he started in us. When, you know, for example, the song, uh, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, um, upward I look and see him there, the end of all my sin. Um, that song, I can't remember which one it is right now, but um, that that is that is it, that... Um, when Satan tempts us to despair or when we struggle with sin, we can look to the hope of our calling and remember that whom he calls, he also justifies, and whom he justifies, he also glorifies. And remember that God is going to finish the work he started in us, that he's never going to leave us nor forsake us, he's not going to abandon us, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we can look back to our conversion and him calling us out of our sin. And when the Holy Spirit convicted us, when, we, when he put the word of God, when he opened our eyes to understand the word of God, and he convicted our hearts, and we, we realized that we were sinners in need of a Savior, and we believed, we trusted in Christ as the Ephesians did, and we turned from our sins and we responded to God's calling on our lives, his effectual calling. And because of our calling is a certainty, our glorification, our redemption, our final redemption is a certainty. So the first gift that helps uh, to know that helps us to grow is the hope of his calling. And the second gift to know that helps us to grow is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, we talked about before um, that some, some of these, some commentators, when they look at inheritance in this passage, and even earlier in this passage, they see it as God's inheritance, that is his people. And I'm going to, Look at Deuteronomy 32 and explain to you in the Old Testament, God's people, excuse me, are his inheritance. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9 says, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Um, And so... 
O'Brien and Lincoln, um, the commentators who wrote commentaries on Ephesians, believe this is God's inheritance of his people. Um, but I just don't think that really fits with the passage. Um, and other, the older commentators like Hodge and um, Matthew Henry, I think, would say that this was, is um, our inheritance that we have in Christ, um, as it was talking about earlier in the passage, that this is um, the glory, uh, the riches of the glory of his inheritance and in the saints, meaning his inheritance that he bestows to us, that he gives to us, his inheritance among this given among the saints, is bestowed among the saints. Um, so, a couple reasons for this. One, in this passage, everything that Paul is praying um, is a gift to the people of God. Uh, the hope of his calling, that's something that belongs to us. Um, the greatness of his power toward us who believe, that's something that's toward us. That's something that's for us, that's available to us. As, as um, Lincoln, Andrew Lincoln mentions. And then, so the riches of the glory of his inheritance is also it's something for us. It's, it's a gift to us in the context of the passage. Also, in Colossians 1.12, um, Hodge points out that, uh, and, and also even Lincoln, who takes a different view, that the context of Colossians, in Colossians, uh, there's a similar prayer in chapter 1 of Colossians that Paul prays for the Colossians. And in that prayer, Paul says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So there in Colossians, he is talking about, he is praying that they, um, and giving thanks that God has given the Colossians, has qualified them to be partakers of an inheritance. Um, so there the inheritance is for them. It's not talking about God's inheritance. And then in Acts 20, 32, Paul says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And Charles Hodge mentions this passage in support as well. So I believe that this is referring to our inheritance, the inheritance we have as believers, as, as Paul is referring to earlier in the passage. And remember, the Holy Spirit is a down payment for that, or deposit for that inheritance that we already have. And as Matthew Henry says, there is a present inheritance in the saints. We do have... we. Part of the inheritance is future. The full inheritance is to come in the future, but we have part of it now. And what is that inheritance now? Well, it is the Holy Spirit, <laughs> number one, the down payment. Uh, but also we have the Word of God. And through the Holy Spirit, we have the presence of God. So we can know God now. We can, he is our portion the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Um, so we can look to the Lord as our portion now, and we're going to know him more fully uh, when we see him in heaven. For we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Um, 
so we have the first fruits of that inheritance now, but we also have more to look forward to. Um, and also, so the Holy Spirit helps us in, in the battle with sin and, and guides us and leads us and comforts us with his presence and encourages us. And we have the church as part of our inheritance now. And I, as I said earlier, I'm thankful to be with you today. Um, I enjoy being with God's people. Um, it's, uh, it's encouraging. and it's, it's a taste of heaven to be with the body of Christ, worshiping God together. And, and that is a, it's a taste of what is yet to come. And so I look forward to the day that we're all going to be together, uh, all the saints, the innumerable, an innumerable number of, um, or a large, incredibly large number of saints worshiping God together uh, before Him in love, um, holy before Him in love. So that, that is part of the inheritance. And as I mentioned, we've talked about the inheritance before, but I'll just kind of review a little bit that um, we have, uh, and, and part of his inheritance is also that he's going to complete his work in us and conform us to the image of Christ. We have the promise of the resurrection. Um, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In John eleven twenty five through 26. Um, and we have the promise of eternal glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The promise of eternal kindness and that's in Ephesians 2, um, a little bit ahead. We'll get to that. But it says uh, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in heaven, for eternity, God is going to pour out the riches of his grace and his kindness. He's going to be kind to us and good to us in Christ Jesus and he's going to treat us with tremendous kindness and, and, and grace that we don't deserve forever. And I don't know what exactly that entails, but it entails him pouring out his love on us and showing love toward us for eternity. Romans eight twenty nine through 30 um, says that we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ and glorified. 1 Corinthians 15 says that we're going to have, 50 through 53 says we're going to have incorruptible bodies. Romans 8, 17 says we're going to be joint heirs with Christ and have glorified bodies. 2 Timothy 2, 12 says we will reign with him. 1 John 3, 2 says we will be like him. Romans 8, 21 says we will have liberty uh, from sin. And Revelation says, uh, 21, 4 says there will be no sorrow. And Colossians 3, 3 through 4 says we will be with him. So I did want to kind of use an illustration of this. Um, but I, I, I kind of, I, I, I stepped over my illustration before, so I'd like to go back and, and illustrate calling, the hope of his calling, because 
Moses um, had a calling, and a, and a kind of an amazing calling. Uh, he saw a burning bush um, when he was living with uh, his father-in-law and his wife Zipporah. He had fled Egypt and was living with the Midianites, and he saw this burning bush, and he approached the bush, and the burning bush in the burning bush was the presence of God. And he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Take off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Take off your feet. Take off your sandals, uh, the sandals off your feet, for the place on which, yeah, Lego, Lego Moses. Um, <laughs> the place on which you stand is holy ground. So take the sandals off your feet, uh, Mr. Potato Head Moses. I don't know. Um, and, and so he took the sandals off his feet, and, and the Lord began to speak to him about his plan and about who he was. He said, I'm the God of, I am the God of Abraham, um, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he said that he was going to send Moses to deliver his people from Pharaoh. And Moses was a little hesitant and had a lot of questions and and can't you send somebody else that can speak a little better than me? But the, the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. And so God had already chosen Moses, and he wasn't going to get out of it. And, and so Moses, he told Moses what he was going to do. He told him that, he was going, that Pharaoh wasn't going to go for it, but that he was going to send signs and wonders, and, and that eventually... Moses would leave and he would, they would plunder the Egyptians and take all their treasures with them out of Egypt. And so Moses had this great calling. And when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, Moses had the hope of his calling to look to. And when Moses was persecuted um, and refused by Pharaoh and he had that hope, the hope of his calling. And even after Moses led the people out of Egypt and he was in the wilderness, he had that hope <clears throat> when they would complain um, about their, uh, their manna or uh, quail or whatever it was they were complaining about, the lack of water. He had that hope um, of what God was going to do to to, to deliver, bring his people to the promised land, the hope of his calling. And that was something he could look to to encourage him and strengthen him, that experience of the burning bush. And I don't think that was where Moses was saved or called to salvation, um, but it was where he was called um, to serve the Lord in a particular way. And we also have the hope of our calling to look, look back to. Now, also, I want to look at Hebrews 11 because um, I want to look at how the riches of the inheritance and the saints, um, how can that help us to grow? How can knowing the riches of the inheritance of the saints help us to grow? Well, let me show you first by illustration through Moses. 
In Hebrews 11, 23, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's command. It kind of makes you wonder what they'd done if he was an ugly child. But, but they, they hid him because he was a beautiful child, it says. Um, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So Moses was able to give up his position, his status in Egypt as a prince, in a sense, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was a prince, and he had all these luxuries, um, all the, any kind of food, you know, he could crave whatever he wanted. He lived a life of luxury, probably in the palace. And he was able to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, even though, you know, she found him in the reeds where his parents hid him. And she had adopted him as her son. He would rather be one of God's people. And he'd rather suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He can enjoy the, any pleasure of sin he desired probably there. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he looked to the reward. So he chose to, re, to be persecuted with God's people rather than leave, living a life of luxury as an Egyptian and enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Delayed gratification. The principle of delayed gratification. He was looking for something greater. The reward. And what was that reward? Well, did Moses have in view getting God's people, leading God's people out of Israel at that point? Or um, this was, I mean, he he really gave this up before the burning bush. But did he have in view the promised land, or was he looking to God as his reward? Was he looking to eternity as his reward, um, or what? We don't know exactly what, what Moses was looking to, but we know he is with the Lord and in heaven now, and that he has eternal life through Christ. Um, and there, it says he esteemed the reproach of Christ. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Christ wasn't born yet, but he was suffering with Christ. Um, he was suffering for Christ at that time, and um, the pro- reproach of being one of God's people. By faith he forsook Egypt, in verse 27, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So he wasn't afraid of the king's wrath or his persecution because he saw God. 
By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So Moses knew that he had an inheritance that was greater than Egypt. He had an inheritance in God. He had an inheritance. There was an inheritance for God's people in the promised land, even though Moses wasn't allowed to enter. But Moses had an eternal reward, an eternal inheritance that he was looking for. I believe he was looking forward to. And so, knowing that inheritance enabled him to say no, deny himself, the passing pleasures of sin. See, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. In fact, Calvin, John Calvin said, self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me we have to um, we have to suffer reproach with Christ the reproach of Christ we have to suffer affliction with the people of God to follow Christ that's part of our inheritance but there's another part of our inheritance that we have to look forward to so we're not denying ourselves just for the purpose of self-denial we're denying something now for something greater later. It's kind of like um, C.S. Lewis talks about playing with mud pies um, in the in the uh, in the sand um, in in the backyard as a child when there's real pie, real pie <laughs> waiting for you inside. Um, so C.S. Lewis says that sometimes we play with mud pies when there's pie. There's real pie. And there's real pie now in the sense of knowing God, but there's real pie in the sky. Sorry, it's a little cheesy, but there's, there's real pie in heaven. The ultimate pie is in heaven. We're going to enjoy some pie today too, but, but not this kind of pie. Um, so... We're denying something now for something greater in eternity because we have a reward to look to. We have something greater. No pain, no gain, right? Um, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. So that's how knowing the riches of the inheritance of the saints can help us to grow. So the first gift to know that helps us to grow is the hope of his calling. The second gift to know that hopes us to grow is the riches of the glory that worth the weight the glory of his inheritance in the saints that's an incredible inheritance we have an eternal inheritance we have in Christ we're going to be rich in a mansion he's prepared for us as Jesus says in John 14 And the third gift to know that helps us to grow is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's look in verse 19. And Paul is praying that they would know. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come so the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe so the same power that the holy spirit worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God and put all his enemies under his feet and gave him to be the head of the church, that same power is toward us who believe the exceeding greatness of that power is toward us. And as... um, as Andrew Lincoln said, it's available to us. It's available to us to live the Christian life, to overcome sin, to overcome temptation. Andrew Lincoln writes in his commentary on Ephesians, the writer also desires believers to know the greatness of God's power God's power, and attempts to exhaust the resources of the Greek language by piling up four synonyms for power in order to convey an impression of something of the divine might. Some commentators have suggested that if there is any distinction of nuance, then dunamis, and that's the word from which we get our word dynamite, uh, dunamis denotes ability to accomplish something, energia, which is the word from which we get our word energy, inherent strength or power, Kratos, the power to overcome what stands in the way, and Iskus, the power, the exercise of power. And he references Schlier and Bart um, when he talks, when he's saying some commentators suggest this. However, the point in the writer's heaping up of these expressions is not there, in the writer's, this Paul's, heaping up of these expressions is not their distinctiveness, but their similarity. The immense power of God is exercised toward us who believe. This life-giving power of the new age was the power which raised Christ from the dead, was the revelatory power at work in Paul's gospel, and is the power available now for the people of God in the continuing communication of God's grace. The prayer is that believers should know and appropriate such power. Um, So, Again, if you look in, um, first he says, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? And that's dunamis, um, from which we get our word dynamite. um, And toward us who believe, according to the working, that's another word for power, of his mighty, another word for power, and then power. So working being... um, Energeon, energia, uh, inherent strength or power, or um, and also dunamis can, uh, as he said, refer to ability to accomplish something. So um, we have the ability to live the Christian life. We have the ability to obey. We have the ability to serve Christ, to share the gospel, to overcome sin. I'm going to quote here Wayne Grudem also talking about this power this new resurrection power in us includes power to gain more 
and more victory over remaining sin in our lives. Sin will have no dominion over you. Um, as it says in Romans 6.14, even though we will never be perfect in this life, this resurrection power also includes power for ministry and the work of the kingdom. It was after Jesus' resurrection that he promised his disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This new intensified power for proclaiming the gospel and working miracles and triumphing over the opposition of the enemy was given to the disciples after Christ's resurrection from the dead and was part of the new resurrection power that characterized their Christian lives. So he talks about the power to overcome sin. He also talks about the power in proclaiming the gospel and working miracles. And then he talks about the power of triumphing over the enemy, the opposition, triumphing over Satan. And Colossians 1.11, where Paul prayed for the Colossians, as I mentioned earlier, he prayed that they would be strengthened with might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So that's a power to endure trials, right? That's a power to endure tribulation, all patience and long-suffering with joy. God not only gives us the power to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel and overcome Satan and overcome sin, but to endure trials and tribulations in our life. Now, O'Brien also talks some about, uh, some. well, he, he mentions in his commentary that Clinton Arnold, um, in, in his work, talked about that the Ephesians were living in a context of um, a people who were pagans and who were very superstitious and believed in magic. <laughs> and they believed in power <clears throat> that would have been demonic or satanic power. And in this context, Paul is showing that they have a power that is greater uh, and the power of those who around them um, and the, who would practice magic and so forth. So that was an interesting bit as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you, you see a lot of times missionaries go into different cultures that believe in magic and believe in other gods and you have witch doctors or you have people who are maybe cursing them or um, you have some type of power encounter. Uh, Elijah faced that on the mountain. He showed that it was only God who could ignite the sacrifice, uh, only Yahweh and not the other gods that supposedly had power. So there is power um, to show to defeat Satan, and, and, and there is power through the gospel and through Christ to show others the power of God and that he is greater. That greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. James Montgomery Boyce says that Paul wants the Ephesians to know this power experientially. It's a knowledge of experience. 
they would experience the power of God in their lives. So we can know about this power, but to really know this power, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Christ. We have to pray and ask God to help us to overcome temptation in our life and to give us victory. Uh, We have to share the gospel. And have you ever had the experience where you are sharing the gospel with someone and you just can't believe what you're saying or that, you know, you can't believe where are these words coming from? Um, or how did this, why is this person listening so intently to me? Um, Paul said that he was not ashamed of the power of, uh, of, he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to salvation to all who believe the Jew first and also the, the Greek. So, The gospel is powerful, but to experience that power, you have to proclaim it. You have to obey. And, I mean, I have had some experiences where, yeah, it felt awkward and it felt forced. And I think I was obeying God to share the gospel and it was the right thing to do. And God used it. But there's other times where I just felt like, man, wow, the Holy Spirit is really at work here. This person, I have their full attention I'm saying things that I can't believe, you know, God has given me the wisdom to say. Um, This is the power of God speaking through me. And he has appointed this time uh, in this place for me to share this with this person. And maybe, I I remember this one young lady I shared the gospel with uh, when I was working at Lake Junaluska. and, And this is about glorifying God it's not about glorifying me but I I shared the gospel a certain way and and it just was not connecting with her and it was awkward and and I began to pray that God would help me and save her and give me another opportunity and I remember I I brought she was working with me in the hotel and and uh, I brought my lunch Three days in a row, I brought lunch, and she forgot her lunch, and I shared with her one of my sandwiches. And on the third day, we began to have a conversation about death, and it just kind of happened naturally, and it led to a conversation about the gospel, and she believed. And it was God speaking through me and, and just bringing the conversation you know, bringing words into my mouth and, and opening, giving me an open door in the conversation to share the gospel. That is the power of God. And the power of God in overcoming trials, well, that we just experience because God brings them to us. And, but we, we grow in our trials when we are spending time in God's word and we are um, uh, we we are allowing the Spirit to give us wisdom through the Word of God. So, three ways to grow, three th- three gifts to know that help us to grow, and by um, a crude example. Christmas is coming. I know 
it's a week early to talk about it, but but a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So, and we're not going to talk about ghosts, but let's say if God sent three angels, um, the angel of salvation passed. The angel of salvation past takes us back to our conversion and reminds us of the calling of God and how God called us out of our sin to himself and how God called us to know him and to walk holy and without blame before him in love and have a relationship with him and to turn from our sin and to trust in him for our salvation and God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. Let that encourage us in our Christian walk. And then the angel of Christmas future comes to us and takes us to heaven and shows us what's awaiting for us there. First and foremost, our prince, our savior, the prince of peace, the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And all the treasures that he's going to bestow upon us because we're joint heirs with him. And our resurrection bodies and freedom from sin and sorrow and suffering and being with him and with God's people forever. And then the angel of salvation present comes to us and shows us the exceeding greatness of the power that's available to us. The power to overcome sin, the power to overcome trials, to to endure trials, the power to overcome our enemy Satan, and the power to proclaim the gospel and to love others in Jesus' name. And that we are here to experience today with God's people, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. These are three gifts to know that help us to grow. Father, thank you for these gifts that you've bestowed on us. Help us to know the power that's available to us. Help us to experience that power. Help us to know the riches that are waiting for us in Christ. And help us to know the hope of our calling that you are going to complete what you've started in us. In Jesus' name, amen.